This morning we're going to be talking about reality. Hopefully that's not all that unusual for us to be uh, talking about reality. But this morning in the passage we're looking at uh, Luke 12, Jesus is going to be talking about being real, being honest, dealing with reality. He's going to be telling us the truth about life, about priorities, about our future. And the thing that struck me as I read this passage was how unreal it all felt to me. As I looked at my emotional response to the things that Jesus had to say, I recognized that these are some things I need to really hear and grapple with. I need this sermon as much as any of you might today. Jesus is going to be talking to us, saying things that we readily give our assent to, but we rarely ever put into practice in our lives. There are things that, that we all know to be true, we just don't believe it. At least not enough to let it change the way we act, the way we live. Jesus is talking this morning about getting real, being honest. Because of all this, he starts the discussion by talking about hypocrisy. Living differently than we say we believe. Now, I've got an illustration of this that, as my wife says, I've used a gazillion times, but I like it and it fits, so I'm going to use it again. Um, when my oldest daughter was about five, she went with me down to St. Luke's to visit someone from the body that was in the hospital. And we spent quite a while looking for a parking place. And we finally found one. And as we're walking to the, to the hospital, I'm grumbling about the fact they had no clergy parking. As we're going up the stairs, I looked down at Holly and I said, do you know what clergy is? And she looked up at me and with complete innocence said, well, is that kind of like a hypocrite? <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, you know. I had to say, well, in this case, it is. (laughs) But let's take a look at what Jesus has to say. Remember, this is part of his training of his disciples. Let me just read verse 1 of chapter 12 of Luke. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another... Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast, or the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The first thing I want you to notice is that Luke says it was when there were thousands of people all crowded around, trampling on each other, stepping on each other's feet. That's when Jesus said, Okay, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, what's the relationship between these crowds and hypocrisy. Well, you see, these crowds meant that the ministry was going great. They were successful. They were getting thousands of people coming to hear. They were on top of, of things. Things were going wonderful. And that's exactly when hypocrisy creeps in. Hypocrisy tends to be the sin of the successful. See, it's the successful that have an image to maintain, that that want to pretend to competence so that everybody will think they deserve to be that successful. They're on top and they need to to stay on top by, by making everybody think that they're really in control. They're under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of great expectations. See, this is true in every area, politics, business, media, but nowhere is it more true. Than in the church, 
in our walk with God. You know, when I was a new believer, I wasn't afraid to tell anybody about the sins I was struggling with, the things I was going through. I had nothing to lose. And besides, I wanted to be rid of these sins. They were getting in the way. They were messing me up. I just wanted them gone. I didn't care what other people thought. But then after you're a Christian for a while, you know, I mean, it's been quite a few years, you should start having your act together. And it gets embarrassing that you're still struggling with these things. And especially once you start leading a Bible study or teaching a Sunday school class, what are people going to think if they knew I I still struggled with lust? What would they think if they knew I still treated my my wife selfishly? What, What would they do if they realized how rarely I actually had a quiet time? We begin to cover up, to pretend, to hide. And we're taught not to offend. You know, if you sin... You're going to embarrass God. You're going to embarrass the church. You're going to embarrass your family. And the focus shifts to to not embarrassing God, not embarrassing the name of Christ. And people, when that happens, when that becomes our focus, the the, uh, trap has sprung. We're caught. See, the issue isn't embarrassing God. If God was worried about being embarrassed, He never would have given us this book. This book is full of, of, of his people who fail, who do the wrong thing. Abraham, our model of faith, tried to pass his wife off as his sister twice in order to save his own neck. And God had it written down for everyone to read. And, and King David, man after God's own heart, committed adultery, then he committed murder trying to cover it up. If God was worried about being embarrassed, why did he expose it? Why didn't he just quietly get rid of King David? Well, why, why, uh, did he, uh, why didn't he just cover it all up, keep it all suppressed? And that way the, the people around wouldn't have seen what hypocrites God's people tend to be. You see, the reason is, first of all, God does not get embarrassed. And second... What matters, what's important, is not who gets embarrassed. What's important is getting righteous, is getting free from sin. That's the focus. And that can only happen as things come to the light. See, the the trap the enemy sets for us goes like this. You know, I'm a Christian now. I shouldn't do that sin, but I did it. Now, maybe it was a little sin, a white lie, a, 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 a... Inappropriate action toward a member of the opposite sex, a a, a hurtful word, a selfish action toward my spouse or my child. You know, not a big thing, a little thing. doesn't really matter that much. And and if I bring it up, it's just going to hurt my wife. It's just going to confuse my child. It's just going to make my friends wonder about me. So I won't say anything. I just won't do it again. But we do it again. And we uh, then maybe do it, get involved a little more. It gets a little worse. It gets a little bigger. And we just make ourselves all that much more determined not to do it again. But we do it again. And by that time, we begin to cover it up. We begin to try to hide it. To begin to try to keep others from knowing it. Because we're embarrassed. Because we're ashamed. Because we're afraid of the consequences. And as soon as we start that cover-up, image has become the important thing. Righteousness has become irrelevant. We've lost perspective. And in that cover-up, we, we, we begin to, to try to deceive ourselves. We begin to, 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 to tell ourselves, it'll never happen again. This will stop, but it doesn't. 
and we begin to, uh, to, to pretend to have a deeper relationship with God than we do so that others won't suspect that we're struggling, that we're covering. The result is that we become completely ensnared and enslaved. We cannot get out of this ourselves, yet we're afraid of the embarrassment. We're afraid of the consequences of exposure. So we go on living the lie, and we become consummate hypocrites. And the worst part about it is that we tell ourselves we're doing this for God, to protect His reputation, or that we're doing this for the people we love, when in fact what's happening is that our behavior toward the people we love is deteriorating. We're treating them too harshly. Or we're disengaging from them. We're, we're, we're treating them too leniently. The, the, the balance of, of strong, engaged, yet tender love, that, that balance only comes as we walk with God, and that balance is lost. And what's worse is, is in our supposed attempt to protect God's reputation, we are, going, we are absolutely distorting His reputation. We begin to represent God as either too harsh or too lenient. We, we begin to, 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 to try to make up for our failure by increasing our intensity of our, uh, of our supposed commitment to God. And we misrepresent Him. We distort the image of God, both in our minds and in the way we represent Him to others. Well, before we look at Jesus' solution to all of this, I, I want to take one more try at appealing to all of you to, uh, to deal with reality, to face reality. Many times over the past, I've asked you to look in front of you, look behind you, look on either side, and to tell yourself that the people you see struggle just like you do, fail just like you do, are in need of God's grace, His forgiveness daily, just like you are. The problem is you still don't believe me. You still are convinced that everyone else here has their act together, and that if they only knew what was going on in your life, they would be shocked, and you would be ashamed and embarrassed. The fact is that each of us are in constant daily need of God's grace and His forgiveness. Uh, Last week, two days ago, I had to apologize to my youngest daughter for swearing in front of her. I uh, was angry and frustrated. I was angry at God and some other people. And I was out of control. And I had to go back to her and say, I'm sorry that you had to see that. And she said, that's okay, Daddy. But I wouldn't dare pretend that that didn't happen. I wouldn't dare pretend that that was okay, that somehow that was justified because of what other people were doing. I wouldn't dare act like I'm above that. She knows me. She lives in the same house with me. She's smarter than that. And last week I had to go to another brother in Christ and to tell him that I intentionally put myself in a situation where I would be tempted and I sinned. And I told him because I wanted him to hold me accountable, to not let that happen again. Because I desperately do not want to be ensnared and enslaved by sin. And if any of you are under the delusion that now that I'm senior pastor, the, the, the temptations are gone and, and my tendency to fail are gone, I'm sorry, that is not reality. And if that's hard for you to deal with, I'm sorry. But I won't play games here. It's too important. Like the commercial on TV says, image is nothing. 
It doesn't matter. Image is nothing. Righteousness is everything. I want to see God as He really is. And to see God as He is, I've got to face myself as I really am. I think the energy, perhaps, that that I've got going about that right now is just some of the circumstances we've been through recently as a church are pointing out how important this is. We cannot afford to play games. None of us. We've got to get real before God and with each other. Now listen to what Jesus says, verse 2. He says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The first thing Jesus says is that it's all going to be exposed anyway. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking that you can keep it all covered up. You cannot. Ultimately, when Christ comes again, everything will be made known. Now again, here's one of those things, those truths that we all say, yeah, that's true, but none of us really believe. I mean, we know he'll come again, probably in another couple thousand years, but what does that matter to me? At least that's the way we live. That's the way we act. But the fact is, he is coming again, and everything will be made known. So I need to deal with it now. I need to expose things now and get them dealt with, get, get them cleaned, get, bring them to the light. Let God see, or God already sees them, but let Him heal them. Let Him, Him free me now so that when He comes again, I will not be ashamed. Fact is also that not only will it be revealed when He comes again, but in all likelihood, it will be revealed before then. It will be revealed soon. Whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever you've been ensnared by, by God's grace, it will be revealed. Your family probably already knows. Now, they may not know the details, but they know something is wrong. Something doesn't add up. And if if your sin is that you are abusive of your family or, or unloving towards your spouse, others will know that. That won't stay a family secret. God, by His grace, has ways of making these things known. Some strange accidental encounter, some slip. God, by His grace, makes these things known. I have an illustration here I tell a little bit uh, with some trepidation because uh, I don't want to get back to the person it happened to, but he's away at school. So, One time, quite a few years ago, my daughter was playing in our front yard, and she saw a high school kid from the church drive by. And she recognized him as being from the church, and she saw him throw something out his window. So she went over, picked it up, and here was a note from the school to this guy's parents telling that he had been cutting school. So uh, she brought the note in to us, and we looked at it, and we thought, well, if this was our kid, we'd want to know this. But we didn't want to make a big deal of it. We didn't want to embarrass the parents or anything like that. So Becky took the note and she ironed it smooth, (laughs) folded up very nicely, stuck it back in an envelope and wrote on it, I think you lost this, signed an angel, and mailed it to his parents. I would have given anything to see his look (laughs) 
<laughs> as they brought him this note. I mean, he had got to the, to the mailbox on plenty of time. He thought he was home free. He was in some strange neighborhood, away, way away from where he lived. And he had taken care of things. And here is the note. Anyway, <laughs> the bottom line is you can't cover it up. It will come out. Don't keep thinking that you can hide it forever. By God's grace, that simply is not true. And, and the second reality check that, that Jesus brings here, he says, essentially, why are you worried about what other people think when the worst they can do is kill you? You ought to be worried about what God thinks, because after he kills you, he can throw you into hell. Uh, worrying about what other people think is like worrying about a mosquito on your arm when somebody's got a shotgun in your face. It doesn't make sense. The one person who you cannot fool is the one person you should worry about what he thinks. See, God knows what's going on. And what matters to him is not image. Image is nothing. Righteousness is everything. See, he wants you to be righteous because he wants you to be freed from sin and the misery that sin causes you and everyone around you. He loves you and he wants that out of your life because sin kills. God is tough. He can and he will throw some into hell. Now that is tough news. God is also tender. God knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He isn't shocked by what you do. And when you confess it, he is faithful and just because of what Jesus did on the cross to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, that's what he wants to do. He knows your needs. He knows your weaknesses. If you are covering up You have reason to fear, but you have absolutely nothing to fear if you're coming to him humbled and open. Verse 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You see, Jesus is is saying that the Father knows you. He knows why you do what you do. He understands. And He can heal you. He can cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He knows your weaknesses and needs. Never fear rejection when you come to Him. He saw you fall, just like He sees the sparrow fall. It didn't happen behind His back. And He understands it. You're very important to him. Let him love you. And Jesus gives another warning. Verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now this is going back to that whole idea 
of why worry about humans and human authorities, human institutions, when you're dealing with God? Why worry about what people can do to you when you're dealing with God? Why worry about the mosquito? But you see, people do. They, they, they refuse to come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because they're afraid of what will happen, what the consequences will be in their lives, what, what their friends or their families will think. And Jesus gives them a warning. He says basically, listen, if you deny me before the people here, the judgment before the angels, I will deny you. Basically saying, if you don't want me now, if you don't want to be with me, I won't ask again when it's all over. Now again, that's, that is tough words. But we still, again, see his tenderness at the end of the, that section where he talked about for those who go ahead and, and follow him and take the risk and suffer the consequences that are they're, they're persecuted, they're pushed out of their families, they're dragged before rulers and authorities. He says, don't worry. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He'll take care of you then. He'll give you the words to say. Now, the verses that usually jump out at people in this section is the stuff about the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but if you're worried right now whether you've committed that sin, well, that's usually a pretty good indication that you have not. You see, John tells us, uh, the Apostle John tells us in his gospel that one of the, 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 the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and our need for a Savior. And then he also shows us, opens our heart to the fact that Jesus is that Savior that we need. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is not saying something bad about the Holy Spirit. It's not swearing using his name. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is calling him a liar when he convicts you of sin and and tells you that you need a Savior. Calling him a liar when he's put his finger on your heart and you say, no, I'm not a sinner. No, uh, that's okay. Or, or, Or I don't believe. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to face this. This is just some religious guilt from my my background or some other explanation calling the holy spirit a liar when he convicts you of your sinfulness and your need for a savior and then calling him a liar when he tells you in your heart that jesus is that savior See, and the reason this is the unforgivable sin is because those who resist refuse this work of the holy spirit never come to jesus that their sins might be forgiven They refuse because they refuse to face that they need it and they refuse to face that He is the one they need. And that's why it is unforgivable. If you are struggling, if you are feeling your sins and turning to Jesus with them, you have nothing to fear about this sin. However, if you are continuing to live and operate under the delusion that you can keep faking it right through the end, then you are in trouble. Now, before we go on to the next section, let me summarize what we've seen. We've been talking about getting real, about reality, about uh, uh, being honest. And the first uh, reality that Jesus wants to drive home is the fact that hypocrisy, acting like we are sin-free, is a killer. 
When we do that, it causes us to, to, to have a distorted view of ourselves and a distorted view of others and a distorted view of, of our ability to fool people, to fool God, and to fool ourselves. We often do deceive ourselves, but we never deceive God. And the real problem is that it also distorts our view of God. We begin to, to, to think of Him in wrong and unhealthy ways. And when that happens, we're lost. It's over. We're trapped. How do we get out of that trap? Well, there is only one way. And that is to face that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. To turn to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Confess your sins to Him and ask His forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. He's delighted to forgive you. He died on the cross so that He could forgive you. If you've already done that, the next step is to tell someone else. Tell your spouse. If that's not possible, tell a a, a brother in Christ if you're a man or a sister in Christ if you're a woman. Don't say, well, I can't find one that I trust. The the issue is not, can you trust this person? The issue is not, will you be embarrassed? Who cares? Fear God, not man. Image is nothing. Righteousness is everything. Do it because you need to. Find someone and tell them. Period. Many of you are already in accountability groups, two or three women or two or three men who get together and ask each other hard questions. That is great. And if you're not in a group like that, or if you don't have a relationship like that, man, start one. Find one. We all need Christians with whom we can talk honestly and openly, with whom we can really talk. Now on to the next section. This man uh, comes up to Jesus from the crowd, and he says, uh, Jesus, get my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Apparently, this guy's parents have died, and his brother is keeping it all for himself, and he wants his fair share. Sounds fair enough. So he comes to Jesus. He has a right to this money. But Jesus doesn't seem to care a whole lot about rights. Jesus cares about hearts. Jesus doesn't seem to care who gets the money. He doesn't, it doesn't matter to him one way or another. What matters is where their hearts are. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, Self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Okay, the illustration Jesus uses here is pretty pretty clear. Basically, this man thought he had it made. And right when it all came together for him, he dies. 
He loses it all. You know, the fact is, you cannot take it with you. Reminds me of that story about the very wealthy man who was absolutely committed to taking it with him. So he got his, uh, his pastor and his attorney together. And he said, okay, listen, I've got all the money I've ever made jammed in these suitcases. I'm going to take it with me. Pastor, I want you, when they open the grave to put my casket in, I want you to put all of my money in the grave. Will you do that? Pastor said, I promise, I'll do that. And he turned to his attorney and he said, I want you to be there to make sure he does. Well, the day of the funeral, the attorney was running late. got there right as they were putting the last bit of the dirt back into the grave. And he ran up to the pastor and he said, did you do it? Did you put all of his money in there? Do you promise? The pastor said, absolutely. I put the entire amount in there. I wrote him a personal check for the entire thing. <laughs> but the bottom line <laughs> is that you cannot take it with you. That is reality. But not only can you not take it with you. Verse 15 said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, that's not what this life is all about, having things. The one who dies with the most toys does not win. But again, this is one of those uh, nice religious things to say that we don't really believe. That we don't live. I mean, what would happen if we started giving priority to other things in our lives than money, than work? What would happen in your life? Would you lose your job or at least fall way behind? How how can you make ends meet unless you work so hard at it? Well, there are two related traps here. The first trap is to look at money as the way to find peace and security. You see, see, this man in, in Jesus' illustration confused ease with peace. And they're not the same things. Peace is what our hearts really long for. A lot of money can buy you ease, but it cannot buy you peace. In fact, usually it works the opposite, that, that, that a lot of money tends to, to, to rob from peace because it distracts and it masks the true source of peace. Peace is a function of righteousness. Isaiah 32, 17 says, And the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. That's Isaiah 32, 17. That righteousness is the source of peace. And see, this man, rather than using his wealth to help others, to love others, when God gave him far more than he needed, instead he built bigger barns and tried to hoard it all for himself. And the fact is, there is no peace, no satisfaction in greed. There is joy. There is peace in responding to God's generosity toward us by being generous, by giving to those in need, by helping others. There is delight and pleasure Joy. Well, then why don't we do it? Well, usually because we're afraid. If I give away what I have, I won't have what I need. I won't have enough to eat or or to live or to feel good about myself. See, and that's the second trap. 
First trap is to think that things will give us peace and security, and they won't. The second trap is to be afraid that, that, that if I open my hands, if I stop focusing on acquiring, if I let it go, then I won't have enough, and I'll be destitute, I'll be lost, I won't have what I need. See, and that trap, that fear keeps us enslaved to amassing and acquiring. That fear really is the, the sin of America. It is the leaven of America. It is our, our, our national sin, our, our corporate weakness, our, our fatal flaw. That we live in fear that we have to have. We have to have more. All of us are affected by it. And that's exactly what Jesus talks about in the next verses. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We don't believe these verses. If we did, we would live very different lifestyles. We wouldn't be so driven. We wouldn't be so anxious. We wouldn't hold so tightly to the things that we have. You see, this just doesn't seem real. It seems like nice religious things to say. God will take care of you. Yeah, God will take care of me. I got to work hard just to stay alive, just to stay on top, just to get what I need. And that's, that's what common sense dictates to me. That's what my emotions dictate to me. This isn't real. But it is real. This is reality. And that's the hard part. It's our thinking that's not real. It's our, our emotional response that doesn't line up with reality. The hard part is believing this. See, the bottom line is Jesus is calling us to trust God. He's saying, God loves you. He's paying attention. He's going to take care of you. Now trust him. Let me challenge you all to do an experiment just for one month. Just for one month. You can't do yourself too much damage in one month. For one month, decide not to worry about material things. I mean, you still go to work. You still pay the bills you can. You still uh, uh, make responsible financial decisions. You still balance the checkbook. You just don't worry. And if you start to worry, stop. Say, no, for this month, I'm not going to worry. I'm not even going to let the anxiety start. And after one month, 
Take a look at your financial situation. See if it has worsened. It won't. Worry does not produce anything except for stomach acid. Doesn't produce anything worth having. See, Jesus is not calling us to be irresponsible. He's not calling us to, to not think through our financial decisions. He's not calling us to, to, to not work to the very best of our ability at our jobs for God's glory. He's just calling us to not worry. Worry doesn't do anything for us. Anxiety does not take care of us. God takes care of us, and He will do that one way or another. He'll do it either through our paycheck, through our families, through whatever way He chooses, but He will do it. Now, you may not drive the nicest car in town. You may even have to ride the bus, but so what? Your happiness is not determined by what car you drive. If it was, I'd be miserable all the time. (laughs) It really isn't determined by those things. You may not eat steak, but you will eat well. He'll take care of you. He'll give you what you need. See, Jesus isn't just saying, don't worry. He isn't just saying the negative, stop worrying. He's also saying the positive. The reason we don't worry, the reason we don't focus all of our time and energy, let concern for financial things and money dominate us and distract us and and affect our integrity and the way we treat others. The reason we don't do that is because it distracts us from something that's far more important. What's more important? Well, the kingdom of God and treasures in heaven. Now, what are those? We're talking pie in the sky here. The kingdom of God and treasures in heaven. Again, it starts to feel like we're not talking reality here. We're not talking everyday life. What are, what are these things? What is the kingdom of God? There's no territory. There's no visible existence. Are we talking about church? Is this just one of those other things that say you have to be, come to church all the time and all the meetings and everything? No. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also in your homes. And it's also in your neighborhoods. What is the kingdom of God and how do we seek it? Well, the kingdom of God consists of relationships. That's what it is. First of all, a relationship with the king himself. That's the fundamental relationship. And without that relationship, without submitting to Jesus Christ as king, As the rightful ruler of your life, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. But once that relationship is established, then there's other relationships. There's relationships with his other subjects, loving them, building them up, encouraging them, helping them. And there's relationships with those outside the kingdom, loving them enough to to introduce them to the king, to to, to spend your resources to, to reach them, that they might find freedom in the kingdom. See, that's what the kingdom of God is, and that's how you seek it. You seek a growing, deepening relationship with the king, with God. And you seek to love people in the kingdom, to love others into the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. Now, now what's these treasures in heaven? Well, what can we take from here to there? We can't even take these bodies. We can't take any money, any things. The only thing we take from here to there are relationships. Relationships are our treasure. That relationship with God, most fundamentally, with the king again. 
but also our relationships with his subjects, others in Christ. Those are our treasures. Those are the things that no one can take away from us. They can take everything else. They can even take our physical life, but they can never take our relationship with God or with each other away from us. That's what we were created for. Relationship. That's where we're going to find satisfaction and fulfillment. Money and things are merely tools to use to build relationship, to express love. God has given you your money, your things, so that you can love your family and that you can love those around you in need. You can encourage them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul makes it absolutely clear that the reason God gave more to some and less to others is so that those who have can give to those who are in need and both can enjoy the bond, the connection, the love expressed, the the relationship that is deepened, the hearts that are touched in that process. That's God's design. That's why He did it that way. Things are tools to love and to build. That's the whole point. And the focus, the heart of it, is the relationships and the love. Okay. This week's passage is about reality. About looking at things as they really are. Authentic Christianity, as, as, as Ray Stedman termed it. See, these aren't just nice religious thoughts. These aren't just Things we say, yeah, that's true, and then go live another way. These are reality. And and Jesus tells us these things so that we can begin to live consistently with reality. We can be real people and stop faking it. Stop pretending. And the reality is that your your self-respect, your sense of peace is not going to come from what others think of you. Fear God, not man. Image is nothing. Righteousness is everything. Stop faking it. The reality is that that, that possessions are not going to give you what you want, what you need, what what, what your heart aches for. Stop faking it. Trust God, not things. Put your focus on relationships. Those are your treasure. Those are what's valuable. Nurture them. Enjoy them. That relationship with God, that relationship with the people He's put in your life. My favorite verse in this whole passage is verse 32. It's so uh, tender. Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. And He uses a very endearing term there. He says, For your Father is pleased, literally glad, delighted to give you the kingdom. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work our way up to it. We can't fake our way into it. All we can do is be real, be honest, be who we are. Come before Him as we are. And He gives us the kingdom. He gives us those relationships with Himself and and with each other. To the degree we fake it, we close off those relationships with Him and with each other. All He asks is us to be real. To be open and honest. He will give us His righteousness. We can't earn that. We can't attain that for ourselves. He gives it to us as we are open and honest before Him. He longs to give it to us. He longs to give us all we need physically to exist. And He longs to give us what we were created for. A relationship with Him and with His people. 
That is our treasure. And man, that is reality. Let's pray. Lord, again, I confess how uh, often I don't live in reality. I continue to pursue the same shadows and deceptions that the rest of the world is after. I continue to fear to release my grip on the things that you've given me. I continue to fear that others will see me as I really am and that I will lose my image. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would abandon those deceptions, that we would believe what you say. Not only know it to be true, not only say, yeah, that's true, but really believe it, that we would be open. We would stop being hypocrites. We would expose our sin knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we would uh, use the things that you give us to, to gain treasures in heaven, relationship with you and, and, and with people. Lord, this is radical stuff. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would, uh, tomorrow morning when we wake up, that we would see practically what this means, that we would obey you, that we would begin to live according to the truth. I pray this in your name. Amen.